there, listeners and lurkers. I'm Amy Johnston. And I'm Alan Johnston. And we're so glad that you're joining us for The Last Isle. This week, we'll be covering the 1996 movie, The Craft, directed by Andrew Fleming and written by Peter Filardi. This movie is a 90s cult favorite where mean girls meet magic and impress to the 90s teens everywhere that you too can be a powerful sorcerer in flannel and Doc Martens. Oh man, the smell of cigarette smoke and CK1 is heavy in this episode. (laughs) And now, if you'll indulge me, a dramatic reading of the back of the box. Sarah has always been different. So as the new girl at St. Benedict's Academy, she immediately falls in with the high school outsiders. But these girls won't settle for being powerless misfits. They have discovered the craft, and they are going to use it. So, Alan Face, what's your experience with this movie? This came out in 96, so I was in high school when it came out. Um, I'm pretty sure I watched it pretty soon after it came out like I don't think I waited on this one but at the time which stuff was like your thing oh yeah and I was like I mean I did not fit in anywhere in particular but I was you know definitely not a witch definitely not a witch (laughs) even though secretly I wanted to be a goth I just I wanted to dress gothy yeah um but you were a dance team well yeah 90s alternative was about as far as I took it you were going to football games I was going to football (laughs) games in my little raw raw fucking petticoat and shit but I so anyway I do remember seeing this movie pretty soon after I liked it of course Mm mm-hmm I, oddly enough, I never really considered it horror. Although a lot of people do it has because it has to deal with it has to do with witchcraft. Yeah, but I don't know if it's just because my bar on what's horror is so high or violent or gory or whatever. I've never really considered this a horror movie. Although I was absolutely happy to cover it for the podcast. It's just a, because it's, it's on the horror spectrum, yeah, and I will argue that to the grave. <laughs> yeah, well, and to the point where the director like kind of looked it was like what do we need to do to get a pg-13 rating and did and followed all yeah. the steps and checked all the boxes and they still got an r rating just because of the subject matter teenagers yeah. and witchcraft and i'm like give me a break <laughs> please give me a break so so because of that yes lots of people consider it horror but i love this movie i don't think i love it as much as you because i know it was such a formative movie it for really you was, it was yeah but it's it's great i mean also i th- I can't tell who of the main cast I had the biggest crush on. Oh, my God. (laughs) Or who I wanted to be more. Like, it was just like the four of them together. I'm like, oh, right. I love you. I want to be you. Let me have your wardrobe. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I can guarantee with reasonable assurity that this was a rental uh i think that it was probably when mom agreed to rent and watch with us because yeah, i don't think we saw it in theaters dad like, I don't wouldn't remember. have agreed to rent it but mom might have probably if i was like showing interest and uh when i saw it i was immediately witch like <laughs> not commenting on current proclivities one way or the other but at 14 i was boom immediate witch like <laughs> watch this movie was like vampires who like <laughs> this movie was my gateway well dude. yeah because before this it was interview with the vampire yep, and you it was were vampire, vampire movies so i was very into vampires i know this was also the birth of my absolute fascination with favors of bulk oh, yes. um so i think i'm tipping my hand a bit here probably but this is my fecking go-to movie mm-hmm. like absolutely um i watch this movie at least once a year and i will absolutely give this movie the most biased review like I'm a fan. That is what you are getting, listeners. A 100% <laughs> biased review. Biased review. It's another time capsule favorite for me this week. 
Well, before you pull those sleeves down any lower and write all your angst into your sticker-covered journal, let's jump in. (laughs) Here at The Last Isle, we want to remain mindful of sensitive topics, and so we are offering a content warning for the following episode. This episode will include discussions about scenes depicting attempted rape and suicide, as well as scenes depicting self-harm. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, and thank you, listeners and lookers. Caution. Spoilers ahead. The movie opens on a tight bird's-eye view shot of a ritual altar. Candles of various sizes, shapes, and color dried herbs, and a rock painted with a pinnacle. I'm not saying the rock is painted with silver puffy paint, but it tracks. I mean, you get your hands on what you can get your hands on. You raid your mom's craft closet and you make witchy shit. That is what you do when you're a teenager. We can see three girls sitting around a covered patio as a heavy rainstorm seems to rage around them. The camera pushes in on the girls as they chant, now is the time, this is the hour, ours is the magic, ours is the power. They continue this chant as we slowly push in on Feruza Balk. She speaks the words slowly and directly at the viewer. She speaks the final words, ours is the power, directly to camera before a quick fade to black, followed by a quick cut collage of occult and demony images, mm. and then calming oceans and passing clouds. We next hear the song by Our Lady's Peace, Tomorrow Never Knows, over opening credits. The title, The Craft, flies away from us in big yellow letters. Can I just say here, too, before we even get super rolling, the The soundtrack soundtrack. in this movie speaks to my alternative 90s soul. Yes. Our Lady Peace, Sponge, um, Letters to Cleo. Like, every time a new song would come on, because I hadn't seen this movie um, in probably a few years before this last rewatch. Oh, my God. I was just like... Uh, I need my Doc Martens and my plastic barrettes and my and my tight ringer t-shirts and like all the stuff I used I to wear in 96. Yeah. And we will refer to the soundtrack throughout because let's face it, this movie was absolutely made for the teen masses. Oh, 100%. And we we bought it hook, line, and sinker because the soundtrack is a, a bop. Is that is that what they're saying these um, days? Is no. that what we say now? Just, I think we should I think we should just stop trying. <laughs> anyway. We should just give up. <laughs> this is definitely a movie for the MTV generation, and it's absolutely apparent here. I listened to the soundtrack as I wrote this week's episode, and I nice. was just having so much fun, just like listening to the rock. Inside a plane, Sarah Bailey, played by Robin Tunney, looks out of her seat window and looks about as traumatized as a teenager can look. I'm not kidding. She looks like she's there under duress. Yeah. She seems to be looking at nothing in particular, sporting a faraway sadness as the flight attendant reminds her parents to return their seatbacks into the upright and locked position. We see the family land at LAX to torrential downpour. The Bailey family takes a long rain-soaked cab ride to their new beautiful villa-style home. Like, what do they do for a living? I'm like, um, do you guys, like, I'm run just, drugs or something? Because I'm going to go with hedge funds because that mean, seems like a thing that people did a lot in the early 90s. Um, and Sarah spots a large boa constructor outside on one of the passing trees. Well, that's not fucking normal. Mm-mm. Upon entry to the home, Sarah's dad, played by Cliff DeYoung, and Jenny, played by Janine Jackson, noticed the roof is leaking. They discuss the need for a roof as Sarah takes an absent solo tour around the large sprawling house. Does it seem weird to you? And maybe maybe this is just me, uh, but like 
to move into a house with your family where only like one of you has seen the house before. Like I feel right where I mean, and I like I know that when we were kids, like dad got I mean, dad technically bought a house before we moved in. Right. But like it just seems there are so many movies and things I see pieces of, of media. But it's like, isn't it great, honey? And you're like. You yeah. didn't see it? You, or like not even pictures? Because she's like commenting on like, oh, it has such and such kind of floors. And I'm like, have you not seen this before? <laughs> no. They don't have Zillow where you oh right. No, no they didn't. No, this was ninety six. This is before Zillow. I just I, that it struck me so strange. Yeah, it is freaking weird. I don't know. We next see Sarah bound down the stairs to look through some packed paintings, looking for her own items. When we suddenly see a man looking very dirty and disheveled, wanders into the open door of the house and holds a snake out to Sarah. Sarah recoils and the man, credited just vagrant and played by Arthur Senzi, tells her he found the snake in her garden and asks her if she wants it. Who the fuck are you? (laughs) Sarah screams and falls to the floor, but the vagrant tells her to relax and asks her what's wrong with her. Sarah screams for her dad and Mr. Bailey quickly chases the vagrant away. He checks on his daughter and she points out that the snake that had been in the vagrant's hand only moments ago is now coiling its way around Mr. Bailey's feet. The scene ends with him attempting to spear the little guy with a fire poker. I don't think I have ever had a strange man offer me a snake. Just and wander randomly into your... Well, first of all, the door's open, so why? I mean, I guess they are uh, they were unpacking the car, but like... But still. They seem to kind of be done unpacking the car and the door's just fucking wide-ass open in LA. I don't understand. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but just like to have a random dude just like offer you a snake. I mean, I've had weird guys offer me a snake before, but it's usually a different kind of snake. So, um, you know. Yeah. Know. Whoa. <laughs> that was a thinker? Just took you it to- took me a second. <laughs> You're like, yeah, wait, what? Don't say guys offer you snakes to your sister. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we next see Mr. Bailey drive Sarah to her new school, St. Benedict's Academy. He asks Sarah earnestly if she's ready and that they can wait till she gets her school uniform. But Sarah says she can't stay home and watch daytime TV for the rest of her life. Her dad jokingly says, why not? He could. I could, too, also, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or when I used to watch The Price is Right. <laughs> Sarah says that she just wants to get it over with. And when her dad offers that Jenny will pick Sarah up after school, we learn that Jenny is a stepmother, a girlfriend, not Sarah's biological mother. Sarah assures her father that she'll walk home. Would they even let her into the school without a uniform? I mean, like, to me, if there's a uniform Uh requirement, Mm, I don't think they let you in. They'd probably be a little lenient because it's like her first week. Yeah, but I don't know. I I went to public school. I don't know shit. I know. In the halls of the school are all the familiar bustlings of high school life. But walking down the center of the hall are the three girls from the opening of the film. Nancy, played by Feruza Polk, Rochelle, played by Rachel True, and Bonnie, played by Nev Campbell. As they pass three guys standing by their lockers, we can hear two of the boys, Mitt, played by Breck and Meyer. Everyone's in this. And Trey, played by Nathaniel Marston. Feign terror as they call out scary bitch alert and pretend to find a nice warm place once they see Nancy is looking. As a goth dresser in my teen years, I can assure you this is accurate. There's always at least two. Screaming, Halloween is over, or saying she's a bruja, or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't stop with the goths. There will always be a person to make fun of whatever you're doing. For sure. No matter what subgroup you belong to. For sure. (sighs) 
Good fucking times. Anyway. Rochelle and Bonnie sidle up next to Nancy as she goes into her locker. And Bonnie holds a book tightly and mentions that the almanac, referring to the farmer's almanac, says that today will bring the arrival of something. Nancy takes this to mean that she's getting her rag. But Bonnie hypothesizes that maybe this means the girls are getting their fourth. Nancy boredly hangs her hand through the noose hanging from inside her locker. Badass, but you'd never get away with that in high school, ever. Especially not in Catholic high school. Right. I'm just, like, hanging on a noose outside your locker. First, like, there would immediately be a campus officer or a teacher that would be like, take the fucking down give it to me right now. Yeah, go to the office. Yep. Nancy says that they don't need a fourth, but Bonnie explains that four would make a circle. Nancy looks out into the hall at a large female campus officer and quips that maybe she can be their fourth. The girls laugh along as Nancy jests that she loves a woman in uniform. At the bell ring in the next scene, Sarah is in French class. Monsieur Thapeau asks the class in French about their weekend and calls on Mint to ask him what he did. Where did he go? Did he spend time with the girl? Mint finally understands that he's asking if he got laid and he answers that we, he got beaucoup delayed. Sarah mutters something under her breath in French, which Monsieur Thapeau compliments. As Mint calls Sarah a snail trail, so gross. classy, and complains that they should be learning Mexican or something, Sarah plays at balancing a pencil standing up on its point atop her desk. She absently watches the pencil turn by itself, suspended, until she notices that Bonnie gasps. Bonnie has been watching, and the pencil falls and rolls to the floor. This is the dumbest fucking thing to do as the new girl in school it's dumb to do anyway i'm just telekinetic and it's fine <laughs> you just called attention to yourself by like you know um disparaging the dude in french by the way you have any idea what she said because i looked it up and i couldn't find it uh, no i oh, didn't okay. i didn't look i mean i'm sure it was something sassy and snarky because we see sarah be that way throughout the movie but like why is a new kid who has just had attention drawn to her be like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do a little fucking magic back here yeah I totally want to be branded an outcast, like, from the <laughs> Day jump. one, yeah. <sighs> Stupid. Yeah. In the next class, science of some kind, Bonnie walks quickly up to Nancy and Rochelle to inform them that she found the fourth. Nancy feels Bonnie's forehead and asks her if she's feeling okay. Sarah walks up to them and asks if she can sit with the three girls, but none of them respond, and Nancy mean mugs Sarah until she gives up and walks away. Bonnie tries to speak up that Sarah could sit with them, but it's too late. At lunch, another boy that had been a silent bystander to Mint and Trey up until this point walks over and sits next to Sarah. Chris, played by Skeet Ulrich, who, you know, I had kind of a crush on Skeet Ulrich. I think we all did. He was like baby Johnny Depp back then. He really was, yeah. Says that he wants to apologize for those guys in French, that they're assholes. Sarah says that you are who you hang with, and Chris agrees until he realizes that Sarah basically just called him an (laughs) asshole. Sarah apologizes. So saying, he's the brains of the group. <laughs> yeah. Sarah apologizes. Her defenses are up because people have been pretty rude to her all day. When Chris inquires who else has been rude, Sarah directs him to look behind him at Nancy, Rochelle, and Bonnie. He tries to pretend to stretch to look, but when he notices who Sarah is referring to, Chris warns Sarah to stay away from the bitches of Eastwick. He says that Nancy is a major slut and that Bonnie is covered in scars. And that Rochelle, nope, nothing on Rochelle. Anyways, he warns, they are witches. We should probably just mention at this point that Rochelle is the only black student in school. And has no backstory. And has no backstory. No family. You never see her parents. So when they cast Rachel True in the role, Uh 
they wrote the rate. The, they didn't write the race. It thing. was this role was written for a white girl. When they cast Rachel True, they wrote in racist bullying as her, you know, burden to bear. Which I mean, I'm not, I'm not putting down or, you know, downplaying the fact that that is a huge problem. But, but there's probably more to her than just being racist. Than just being like I'm black, so I'm bullied. Um, originally she was supposed to have an eating disorder. That could have still been. They a could thing. have still exactly. They could like have still people have layers. She had no layers. No. It was just like I'm. I'm, I'm Rochelle. I'm the token black girl. Really? It's, it's, anyway, I have, yeah. I have thoughts. I have thoughts about what, how they wrote this character, and I have major thoughts about what they did to Rachel True, the actress, after the movie. Oh. So we'll get into that later. All right. Yeah. Then I would like to hear your thoughts. Anyway, he warns they're all witches. Chris then asks what Sarah is doing after school. She responds with a warm smile and says nothing. But instead of asking her out, Chris just goes off boy aloof and is like, I'm busy. Football practice. Fuck you. But offers for Sarah to come and watch. Dude, ew. <laughs> Just no. You could watch me if you want. That's what he says. I'm like, go to hell. Immediately. Do not pass go. In the next scene, though, Sarah fucking falls for the football dick thing and totally stands on the other side of the fence facing the football field and watches Chris practice. Ugh, hormones. Oh, so gross. I hate those. Nancy <laughs> Nancy calls out Sarah's name and asks her if she's looking for someone as the three girls approach. Bonnie says that some of the football dicks make their girlfriends come and watch as if it's interesting. Nancy mentions, like, Sarah's girlfriend, Chris Hooker. Rochelle offers that Nancy is sorry about what's happened to biology, that Nancy is mean to everyone. Why Nancy can't speak for herself about her shitty attitude is beyond me. Because she doesn't want to. Yeah. Nancy, there's, okay, just quickly as an aside, there's always that dynamic, usually in movies, where it's like the alpha chick and then the girls that speak for her. Mm -hmm. But, like, I did see that a little bit in my own high school. Like, Mm -hmm. there would be the girl who thought she was hot shit, and then there were other girls that would, like, be her lackeys and like yeah. talk for her and i'm yeah. like why it's, it's why why would that why would you want that to be your role just to be close to that person i don't get it whatever I but mean, i was a cop so what the fuck did i know look at, look at the freaking celebrity worship we have going i mean it's just yeah. it's the same dynamic it's just on a small scale in high school yeah nancy invites sarah to coffee telling her to make something up when sarah says dad is waiting for her at home Nancy then warns Sarah that Chris comes on to anything with tits and that he spreads disease and she speaks from personal experience. Nancy then screams at Chris to go long, baby, and startles him, making him trip and fall on his ass. So I noticed at this point when he falls down, he hops back up really quick and you can see the number on his jersey, which is 86, which if you 86 something... You're killing it, it means you take it away. So yeah. maybe it's foreshadowing. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? I mean... We'll have to watch. We'll the have movie. to see. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Nancy tells Sarah Chris is a jerk. He thinks there might be a story to that one. Yeah, a little history. Sarah asks Bonnie where they are going, and Bonnie tells her they're going shopping. Sarah mentions that she doesn't have any money, but Nancy announces they get a five finger discount. As they walk to their destination, Rochelle asks Sarah where she's from, why did she move? You know, the usual get to know you shit. But Nancy notices a scar on Sarah's wrist and asks, what's up with that? Sarah confesses that she slit her wrists. Bonnie observes that she'd even did the right way. But Nancy just calls her punk rock and moves quickly past it. Rochelle asks Bonnie how she knows the right way. Bonnie just tells Rochelle to shut up. (laughs) The four girls walk into the New Age bookstore to the sound of melodic chanting music. 
Bonnie tries to get Sarah to steal a book of spells, citing that everything in nature steals, but Sarah stipulates that they steal for survival. Besides, she already has a diary. Bonnie explains it's for spells and power thoughts, and she writes in it and doesn't let anyone see, except for us, Bonnie adds. So Bonnie is coming in a little hot. Didn't Sarah meet them like that fucking day? Yeah. Pump the brakes there, Turbo. <laughs> like, whoa. As Sarah makes her way to the back of the shop, she notices a large curtain adorned with all seeing eyes leading to another area. But when she attempts to pull back the curtain, the shop owner, Lirio, played by Assumpta Serna, grabs her arm firmly, telling Sarah that what is back there is not for her. Sarah apologizes as Lirio notices a ring Sarah is wearing. And somehow knows that it was Sarah's mother's. Lirio asks if Sarah is planning on paying for her selection of items. And when Sarah confirms she will, Lirio muses that Sarah is not like her friends. <laughs> Sarah grabs a couple of candles and Lirio asks if she knows how to use them. Sarah offers sarcastically that, yeah, you light the wick. Lirio says it's more than that and offers her a book on candle magic. We have that. Mm -hmm. Sarah tells Lirio that she doesn't follow all of that stuff and that she never read a book like that before. But Lirio mentions that maybe Sarah is a natural witch and her power comes from within. Well, this just freaks Sarah right the fuck out and the girls quickly exit the store. I also love how Lirio knows they're totally stealing from her and she seems in no way concerned by it. Yes. And also I have a major point to bring up with this scene. 20 bucks for two books and some candles at a magic shop inflation Bullshit. is pissing me off i know i was like you have to be shitting me those candles alone are 20 bucks even though they're just tapers it's a witchy shop they're, they're gonna 20s. overcharge you yeah it made me very sad it makes me sad <laughs> God damn it later we see the girls walking down a busy city street at night sarah who is obviously experiencing a bit of culture shock in an unfamiliar city is nervous to be out at night and mentions that she really needs to be getting home. Bonnie tells her to just look straight ahead and to keep up as the girls quicken nearly to single file marching pace. Sarah is encountered by a woman asking her for money to feed her baby. Rochelle walks up quickly behind her, telling her not to give them any money. Suddenly, the vagrant approaches Sarah, telling her that she knows her and has another snake for her. The same vagrant that came snake wandering into Sarah's house earlier on. He has to talk to her, he screams after. He had a dream about her. In his dream, she was dead. I have a headcanon about the vagrant, but I'll save that till the end. No, okay, all I want to say, because I wrote something here. Sarah's come across so many snakes since she's gotten to L.A. since she moved in. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is supposed to be symbolic of Nancy's influence on her. Yeah. Because there's a later scene, and I'll bring it up when it happens... Where I feel like th this theory may be solidified a little bit, but I'll bring yeah. it up later. Yeah. That's just, that's my theory. Sarah rapidly runs across the busy L.A. street, narrowly avoiding traffic, as the man yells after her that he knows what he's talking about. He's in touch with the man. Sarah and the three girls look as the vagrant crosses into the busy street, begging Sarah to listen to him when a car runs him over and he lays there motionless. Fuck. These girls know right out of there because they're all assholes. I mean, granted. Yeah, no, I we would all, too, though, at that age. Yeah, like, we now all have cell phones, but you just witnessed a pedestrian aggressively run over by a car. Like, no one's going to give statements? No. Okay. <laughs> and I'm out. The girls run into a clearing up a hill away from the main city and fall dramatically onto a couple of discarded van seats. 
Nancy and the girls make sure that they aren't followed before Bonnie insists that she thought the car was going to hit the vagrant and kill him. Then they realize that they all envision the same thing, the car hitting the man, and Bonnie beams that this is northeast, southwest, the four of them can make things happen. Sarah says that this is all really weird. Nancy reminds that the man was after her. Rochelle chimes in that maybe Manon will be listening now. Now, before I continue, I must say that Manon is not a real deity. Correct. But he is based on numerous pagan deities. According to the Craft Wiki, the reason the producers of the film created a fictional deity is because Pat Devin, the onset technical pagan advisor, said that it would be dangerous to use a real deity because the cultural impact of the film would cause teens to run out to beaches and invoke an actual deity, which could be rather dangerous. In addition, it would be disrespectful to use the name of a real deity. I super appreciate this. I was definitely one of those idiot teenagers. I'm not even going to fucking lie or front. Like, um, had I know. Quick, like, let's go stand on a beach somewhere. First thing I did was look to see if Manon was real. And when I found out he wasn't, I was like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> Who else can I invoke then, I guess? I don't know. Who's yeah. listening? Bonnie explains that the god is man's invention. Manon is older than that. Sarah drinks from a small schnapps bottle and asks the girls if they worship the devil. Nancy goes on to explain that Manon is bigger than God and the devil. He is in everything. Bonnie asks Sarah if things like that happen to her a lot. Yeah, Sarah, do a lot of homeless bros like holding snakes die around you? Or is the first time thing? <laughs> is that why you left San Francisco? <laughs> Everybody just kept getting run over. Rochelle wants to know where she learned her abilities, and Sarah says she doesn't know. Bonnie concludes that she's a natural witch. Sarah says that she hates it. It's always getting messed up. Like she'll want it to rain, but a pipe will burst in her room and it'll get flooded instead. Or she'll want it to go quiet and instead she'll go deaf for three days straight. She shares these things with Rochelle and Bonnie almost gleefully, happily able to share the things that she was trying to hide with the two girls. Happily able to share the things that she was trying to hide with the two girls that find what she has is exciting. Nancy, however, is not feeling this new bond and rolls her eyes with a yeah, right. She adds, if Sarah can do all these things, has she ever heard of invoking the spirit? She explains it's when you take Manon inside of you, like fills you. I'm not, I can't. It's a lot. <laughs> you know, don't say he fills you to your sister. <laughs> Nancy seems euphoric as she explains with a wide, intense smile that Manon takes everything wrong with your life and he makes it all better again. Sarah says, recoiling a bit, that nothing makes anything all better again. But Nancy bites back, maybe not for you. Sarah gets up quickly at this, telling the girls that she's leaving and that they're freaking her out. Nancy mocks that Sarah is scared. Bonnie insists that they need her, but Nancy responds with, yeah, like a hole in the head. The next scene takes place on the roof of a tall building. Chris can be heard off camera saying to Sarah that she sounded weird on the phone when he talked to her last night. He says she thought he'd be hanging out with the girls with the weird heads. When we finally see the pair, they're sitting side by side and drinking beer and sitting on some kind of nondescript roof object. <laughs> Chris goes on about one of the girls with the mammoth head, that it's better than the shrunken head thing, before Sarah finally cuts him off to ask him about his obsession with heads. Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> Chris uses this as an opener to totally smoothly tell Sarah that he notices how nice her head is for kissing. Dude. <laughs> I mean, it's about as smooth as you can expect like a 17-year-old to kid. be. Yeah. yeah. As Chris kisses Sarah, one of his buddies passes by them to tell them both goodnight, a girl offering that it was nice to meet her and quickly moving along. 
Chris invites Sarah to go that no one is at his house. Sarah says she doesn't want to go, and Chris gets what I can only describe as no sex for you, bro bitch face. (laughs) Sarah asks if he's mad, but he's like, no, and then quickly changes his face to kinder, telling her that it's okay when she apologizes. Like, she's like, I'm sorry, which she doesn't have. You don't owe him an apology. I mean, yeah, but we've all been there. I know, but I'm 40 now, so I get to say that. The next day in biology, however, Nancy, Bonnie, and Rochelle approach her to ask her how the hot date went with Chris. Sarah asks what they're talking about, and the girls inform Sarah that Chris has already spread through the entire school that Sarah was the lousiest lay he's ever had. Mm. Bonnie chimes in that Chris said the same thing about Nancy, and Nancy adds that she told Sarah he was a jerk. Sarah approaches Chris in the hall, his two lackeys, Mitt and Trey, in tow. Sarah asks why Chris lied about her, but Mitt intercepts her, picking fake lint off her jacket and role-playing as an agent of sorts, telling Sarah that he'll have to pencil her in for something next week. Undeterred, Sarah pushes Mitt aside and attempts again to talk to Chris, one-on-one, but he responds by loudly announcing that he doesn't want to go out with Sarah again and that she should stop begging because it's pathetic. Sarah calls out to him one more time to say, fuck you. Just dick. Uh, yes, but God, did we all know this dude in high school? Oh my Truly. God. Many of them. Many of them were. So many of them. Yeah. In the next scene, Rochelle stands on a diving board, attempting to steady herself before a dive. Two girls sit on the side bleachers below, also from the swim team, whispering to each other and are clearly talking shit about Rochelle. When Rochelle goes to perform her dive, however, one of the girls, Laura Lizzie, played by Christine Christine Taylor, shouts shark as Rochelle's feet leave the platform. She only completes half of her dive and falls straight onto her back Mm -hmm. to the swim team's sarcastic clap and ridicule. Dude, that looks so painful. (laughs) Even if... Even if this, I'm sure a stunt person probably performed that dive that looked like it fucking hurt. right on your back. Yeah, Yeah, it hurts. Um, That's laps. (laughs) (laughs) In the locker room, when Laura notices Rochelle walking by, she remarks that there's a gross pubic hair in her brush. Then Faye corrects herself to say it's one of Rochelle's nappy hairs. Bitch, cut her. Just cut her. <laughs> you have the right. You I have you the permission. right. I'll cut her. Yeah. I'll cut you her. You just hold her still. <laughs> no. Plausible deniability. You walk away. I'll cut the bitch. And you don't even have to worry about it. I'll cut her for you. Rochelle is a better person than me, however, and asks Laura why she's doing this. Laura asks if Rochelle really wants to know why, offering that she doesn't like inwards. Dude, hardoid? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Where this is so... Who are her parents? Like, who <sighs> taught her this racism? Because... It's horrible. Obviously, everybody in this movie is from money. And so I'm like, is is your dad Rush Limbaugh? Like, what is going on? It. Oof, just oof. Fucking oof, indeed. We next see Bonnie in the radiology department of a hospital with her mother discussing a procedure with her burn doctor. The doctor, played by Brenda Strong, tells mother and daughter that this is an experimental procedure and that they can't make any warranties about its effectiveness. Basically, we're going to hurt you, but it might do nothing. Good luck. Yeah. We see what procedure entails. Bonnie is laid on her stomach and what resembles a tattoo needle hits the scar tissue on her back over and over again. The doctor tells Bonnie she's doing great and not to move, but Bonnie screams in pain as the needle moves over her skin. It is a rough scene to watch. Well, and like, so, so it painful. is her scream is very uh, like it is a good it's a, yeah. good scream. Yeah. But what's weird is so if because she's like 
She's got her face in like you know when you're like getting a back massage mm-hmm. and you're on a table that has yeah. like the whole free face. Yeah, her face is sticking through that. So all of what we see of her face is shot from like the ground up because yeah. her face is you know surrounded by that that cushion thing. Yeah. If you watch when she screams, like after she's like can't take it anymore and she screams in pain, that's how it end. Well, no, it's not not just that. I mean, it is you know ADR or whatever, but the footage, the actual film footage. It's like when you see, what do they call them on Instagram? Like the boomerang where it's like played forward and then it goes backward. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it was. And I only caught it. Well, I suspected it the first time I watched it through when I watched it again this afternoon. I was oh. like, no. They just, so it's like she screams. I always thought it kind of looked weird. If you okay. watch it again, it's like they play it forward and then and then get to the end and then reverse it back. So they have the right amount of time to fill whatever slot they need i don't know why they would have done that maybe because the scream was so good but they needed the duration that's what i'm thinking but anyway whoa just a little movie making magic (laughs) we next catch back up with sarah who is lying in bed reliving a memory of the night she cut her wrists we watch sarah dream sequence as she drinks from a water glass tinged with red blood which then slips from her blood-soaked hands and shatters on the bathroom tile we finally see Nancy walking along a rainy dirt path to her family's trailer. She makes it inside just as the lights flicker out from the storm and her mother, clearly wasted, barks that the lights are out and that Ray didn't even pay the bill. So I guess not everyone at that school comes from money because no. she's living in squalor. Yeah. Nancy's mom, Grace, played by Helen Shaver, shouts drunkenly that she gives Ray money to pay the bill and he can't even pay the bill. Ray, played by John Kapalos, which we just figured out is from fucking Breakfast Club yes, as a janitor. The janitor. And he's not credited in this movie either. No, he's not. <laughs> Tries to wearily assure her that it's the storm, Grace. Grace looks out and discovers that the neighbor's lights aren't out and begins her drunken tirade again. You can't even pay a bill. I give you money, blah, blah, blah. She finally settles on what are you good for as Nancy makes it quietly to her room. I don't even think she makes it to her room. I think she's just like laying down on a mat inside the trailer because it's very possible. I, I don't, don't really see her find any space of her own. She's just laying down and like, because this is like a small single white trailer. Yeah, it's very small, super small. We hear Ray flirtatiously say that Grace knows what he's good for. And Nancy blares music and tries to disappear. Me too, kid. I don't want to hear my stepdad talk about that nasty. Just shut up. You're gross and you're all gross. And I want to sink into the floor now. In the next scene, the girls are back in biology together. And Nancy calls over to Sarah to let her know that they are going on a field trip. They next ride a bus together. A couple of fascinated girls, about five or seven, watch the group in awe. Nancy pulls down her red tinted glasses to make spooky eye contact. And as they finally exit the bus at their destination, the bus driver warns them brightly to avoid those weirdos. But Nancy delivers the iconic line, We are the weirdos, mister. Most classic line from that movie ever and on merchandise everywhere. (laughs) So many t-shirts. The girls walk through the woods, fading into them sitting in a circle, cross-legged and chanting the four elements. We next see Rochelle holding a blade out to Bonnie, reciting the words, It is better that you should rush upon this blade than to enter the circle with fear in your heart. How do you enter? Bonnie recites with perfect love and perfect trust. They kiss briefly and the dagger is passed on to Bonnie, who holds the blade out to Nancy and repeats the ceremonial words. Finally, Nancy holds the blade to Sarah's chest and recites the words, how do you enter? With perfect love and perfect trust, Sarah answers back. 
Nancy responds with, that's a girl, before kissing Sarah and moving on to the next part of the ceremony. Nancy holds the ceremonial blade pointed to the sky. As above, then she stabs the earth, so below. The girls then prick their finger with a needle and drop blood into the plain-looking pewter goblet filled with red wine. They go around the circle. Rochelle begins by holding up the goblet, declaring that she drinks of her sisters, and she asks for the ability not to hate those who hate her, especially racist pieces of bleach blonde shit like Laura Lizzie. Amen. (laughs) Sarah gets the goblet next, and she asks to love herself more and to allow herself to be loved more by others. Then she places a picture of Chris Hooker on the makeshift blanket altar. Dude, please no. (laughs) And she says, I know, it's pathetic. And And we're like, yeah, it is. it's pathetic. Bonnie takes in the power to be beautiful on the outside as well as in. But when it comes to Nancy, she falters. It looks like she wants to say something, but she concludes that she takes into herself all the power of Manon. And then she chugs the lion's share of the wine. Sarah wants to know if that's all, but Nancy only laughs and concludes with blessed be. Blessed be, the girls respond in unison. Rochelle looks up at a tree standing tall above them and says, oh my God, before gesturing at the hundreds of yellow butterflies that float down to greet the girls. Bonnie concludes that Manon is listening to them, that he can hear them. In the next scene in French class, Bonnie and Sarah sit across from each other and Chris just can't seem to keep himself from looking back at Sarah. This continues through the rest of the class. And then as Bonnie and Sarah walk across the courtyard to mass, Chris is following closely behind, much to Sarah and Bonnie's delight. Chris approaches once, starting to say something and then walking away, saying awkwardly, never mind. He quickly comes back, however, and asks Sarah if she hates him. She says she doesn't hate him. Which she should, but... She should. Chris tries to quickly explain that when you're a guy, and he is, people expect certain things. He admits he knows that he said some nasty things about Sarah. Sarah asks if Chris told his friends that he's a lying sack of shit, and Chris swears that he will tell them. (laughs) No, but I will. (laughs) He's like a puppy dog. Yes. He then asks if he can sit with Sarah at mass. Sarah and Bonnie kick up the zombie boy spell a little bit when Sarah tells Chris to carry her books. And Bonnie's because she has a bad back. Sarah can barely keep a straight face as she has to tell Chris to sit in the pew. Mitt and Trey look on with amused shock, calling Chris a Stepford boy. Sarah tells Chris to pay attention, and he looks at the priest obediently, sending Bonnie and Sarah into snorting giggle fits. <laughs> it's really a cute scene. Rochelle tries to show Nancy that Sarah's spell is totally working, but Nancy is having a hard time appreciating Sarah's good fortune. Like, Nancy is like, she is not about the new girl. No, she, she didn't is, want the force she to begin is, with. No. And she is not having the new girl. And the new girl seems to have the power. And the new girl seems to be liked. And the yeah. And nothing started working for any of them until she showed up. And I think Nancy's bitter about that. Yeah. In the next scene, the girls are having a sleepover at Bonnie's. Nancy leans over Rochelle to grab something. And Rochelle comments sarcastically that Nancy is light as a feather. Sarah asks the other girls if they've ever played the game. And describes it as someone lies on the floor and you surround her and put your fingers. You put your fingers where, Nancy quips? (laughs) Next, Sarah explains the rules as Rochelle lies on the floor surrounded by the others. Sarah says that they have to imagine that Rochelle is incredibly light, like she's made of air. Bonnie jokingly asks if that's Rochelle's body or just her head. Sarah tells them to concentrate or it won't work. Nancy giggles and says that she thinks she sprained her fingers to the others while giggling. But Sarah shouts through the chatter for them to focus and starts to chant, light as a feather, stiff as a board. 
The other girls recite at different paces, but quickly fall into a rhythmic chant of light as a feather, stiff as a board, and effortlessly lift Rochelle off the ground and into the air. Sarah notices first with an appropriate expression, holy shit. Holy shit is right. I mm-hmm. absolutely love the scene. As Nancy and Bonnie notice, the three girls take their hands slowly away, leaving Rochelle suspended in air. This was pretty badass camera trickery at the time. Yeah, they just, they had her on like a pole platform and they just green screened it out in post. Yeah, but it looked really good. No, it looked great. Yeah. Rochelle finally speaks up, her eyes still closed and completely unaware that she's fucking floating. She declares boldly that it's not working. When she opens her eyes and realizes she's no longer on the ground, Sarah reminds her to shut up or she'll fall. Rochelle asks how she gets down, but Sarah shushes her again. Rochelle asks who has the instructions, but Sarah tells them gently to just keep concentrating. The camera pulls around the room in a 360, and I thought this scene was real freaking magic as a teen. Like, it really impressed me as a, as a well, teenager. Yeah, because, I mean, how many sleepovers did you play light as a feather, stiff as a board out I as know, a kid? I know, and I wanted that for myself and for my friends. <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't that, it was Bloody Mary. Like, mm-hmm. those were the go-tos at a, at a slumber party in the 80s and 90s. But Bonnie's mom suddenly walks in, offering them clean towels, and Rochelle falls directly out of the air and onto the floor. You can hear off camera her complaining about, ow, my butt. (laughs) As Bonnie's concerned mother asks them if they're getting high, Bonnie ushers her mom out of the room relatively quickly. Sarah asks Rochelle sheepishly if she's okay, but Rochelle just giggles and says they gotta try it. She ad-libbed that line, where she's (laughs) like, you gotta try this. She ad-libbed that. It's very cute. We get the next Teen Witch musical montage of four girls reading an occult book around a lunch table, watching Bewitched together at a different sleepover, and walking through the outdoor cafeteria being slow motion sexy Teen Witch badasses. However, I hate this because there's a glaring continuity error that I cannot ignore and will point out exactly why in just a moment. Mm-hmm. The next scene, we see Rochelle, Sarah, and Nancy in class together wondering aloud if Bonnie was supposed to be back today. Just then, Bonnie walks in, complete fox, and the sister reminds her that homeroom starts at 8.45 sharp. Bonnie says that she's sorry her pedicure ran late. This moment would have been so much more impactful had they not already spoiled Bonnie's butterfly moment for a montage. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Amen. Amen. Anyway, next the girls are sitting on the grass outside the school, and Sarah is telling Bonnie how beautiful she looks. Bonnie tells Sarah she did it. Sarah insists that they all did it together, but Bonnie and Rochelle remind her that Chris is absolutely in love with her now and that Laura has to wear a hat. Nancy is sitting and seething on a bench behind them and finally gets fed up with Sarah's power and huffs off. Sarah asks what her problem is and Rochelle says that her spell isn't working, that she wished not to be white trash or something. Adding that she tried to explain to Nancy, you're white, honey. Deal with it. Oh, Lord. I I rolled my eyes hard at this one. It's just to me reinforcing that, like, the quote Token only thing about her. Yes. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, okay, hearty heart. Like, I mean, I have to remember this was in the 90s yeah. and, like, please give her more of I a know. personality and, like, a character than just be like, hi, I'm Rochelle and I'm black and I dive. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, my God. So there was also a thing I read on IMDb that said that um, Rochelle's parents were actually in early drafts of the script. I don't know if they even ever filmed these scenes, but they were show- they showed that her parents were just boring 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 people Uh and that that's probably part of the reason Rochelle was attracted to 
you know, witchcraft with these girls because it was was like something something different different and and exciting and whatever. But like, you don't get any of that in this movie. I mean, I would totally get, um, it would, given the school that they go to and she's, she's probably pretty affluent. I get that her parents are probably academics. Yeah. Um, but like, you can't give a little bit of home life. It's just, I don't know. Anyway, I mean, we meet Bonnie's mom. We meet Nancy's whole situation. But like Rochelle just exists in a vacuum. And I, I, I'm very annoyed at what they did with her character. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from, from poor Rochelle, poor Rochelle with no story. In the next scene, we see Nancy's altar, magazine clippings, candles, including the very same goddess figure looking candle that mullet hair McGee burned in Puppet Master. Oh, my God. That really? Red, that red goddess candle, that red goddess looking carved candle looks exactly like the red goddess candle. In Puppet Master. In Puppet Master. Go look at it. Anyway, it's just... Just a little observation. Nice catch. Nancy chants rapidly, almost desperately with her eyes closed. It's clear she wants this more than any of the other girls. Back in the trailer, Nancy emerges from the back room, telling her hair and wearing a silk robe. Ray lifts it up as Nancy looks in the fridge and tells her he can see right through that thing. Nancy screams at Ray to leave her alone, and her mother shouts at them to stop, that Ray is supposed to be like a father to Nancy. Ray says, well, he's not her father. And then he says, Nancy's father is whoever paid Grace 50 bucks for a quick bang in the back seat. Instinctively, Grace smacks him up the back of his head, but he grabs her and screams in her face, threatening to hit her back. Nancy screams, stop it, causing the lights to flash and spark and the microwave to spontaneously catch fire. As Grace runs to panic scream out the fire, because she doesn't really do anything. She just runs over. She's like, what's happening? (laughs) Um, Nancy Nancy turns to face down Ray, who already seems to be suffering some chesticle distress. She labels him a pig and watches him struggle, grabbing his left shoulder and collapsing back in the kitchen chair. They next sit in the ambulance, watching the paramedics work on a very blue and soon to be very ex Ray. In the next scene, an insurance adjuster goes over some final details with Grace and Nancy, telling him that he has to be thorough with life insurance policy that size. Long story short, Ray had a big benefit through his company, and Nancy and Grace are awarded $175,000. And they knew nothing about it. And they knew nothing about it. Nancy starts to smile and giggle a bit instantly, while Grace buries her face in fits of crying giggles. Now race now race saying you know what I'm good for all makes better sense to me. Death and insurance money. Good fucking riddance, Ray. It, it cracks you me. You utterly sucked. My yes. Dude. And it cracks me up because Grace is like that poor dear man. Like she's <laughs> but she's just tickled. Because he yeah. was an absolute piece of shit. He was like, a piece of Ray shit. Was piece he, of shit. They got us money. Yep. In the next scene, the girls are walking up to an apartment in some upper class part of L.A. Just going to say $175,000 ain't going to keep you in a place like this in L.A. for fucking long. No I mean, I, I was thinking the exact same thing because I was like, <laughs> I'm like, so I'm not going to go so got far this place as to, like, for a month or what? <laughs> I'm not going to go so far as to like research real estate prices in 1996 in L.A., but like $175,000 ain't going to do shit. Mm-mm. Yeah, because cost of living alone on on top of real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Bonnie compliments a random passerby on his ass. Connie Francis blares as the girls enter the biggest, palest looking L.A. apartment. Grace quickly ushers them in, pointing out the amazing couch she paid cash for. 
showing the girls the view, and then showing them the jukebox. Rochelle points out that every song in the player is by Connie Francis, and Grace confesses that ever since she was a little girl, she wanted a jukebox that played only Connie Francis. Rochelle says, who's Connie Francis? And Grace lights up a cigarette almost manically and tells her to listen and learn. Nancy pulls the girls away, saying that they're going to hang out in her room, but Grace suggests a housewarming party. Nancy slams the door and mutters quietly, sorry, mom. She's obviously like, the money let him have stuff. Yeah. But Grace is still, they lived in such small quarters. Grace is probably feels a little lonely in that big old apartment. Mm -hmm. Nancy finally has a room of her own. Yeah. And like, I think mom is just like, let's be together still. Well, I think it's like, let's party. Like she's. You could tell she's reverting because, like she said, you know, ever since I was a kid, I wanted this jukebox and whatever. Yeah. And so she's living out her little, like, childhood fantasies and daydreams. A little 60s and 70s fantasy. Yeah, but, I mean, if you think about it, like, Grace's, like, lavender and Connie Francis' aesthetic is not Nancy's aesthetic. Not her vibe. So Nancy's like, I'm out. Yeah. Nancy walks over to the girls already sitting on her bed. And Bonnie already looking through Nancy's new clothes and shows them a spell she read about performing a glamour. Rochelle reads the passage. Throwing a glamour, an illusion so real as to fool an onlooker, is one of the oldest forms of magic. Sarah says that she bet she could do that. So later that night, we see Sarah touching her hand above a flame. This is to feel. Touch, then touching a rose. This is to be. Shape it and form it. She covers her eyes for all to see. By the power of three times three, as I will it, so shall it be. Sarah opens her eyes and holds up her arms in a kind of ta-da. Rochelle asks what, and Sarah points out that her eyes are brown. They're usually green. Nancy rolls her eyes and huffs that Sarah can do that with contacts. Sarah asks if they want her to go bigger, and they say, yeah. Sarah asks if they're ready, and what the fuck happened oh my god (laughs) sarah pulls her hands down the sides of her hair and her hair color changes from auburn to blonde look i don't know if this is blue screen or if they colorized each frame of film or what the fuck happened to achieve this effect but dude just switch wigs at this point yeah because i would have rather sarah been like hold on and try to switch wigs one-handed off camera or like wear a blonde <laughs> wig on top of a brown wig. Either would have been better. What happened? The- they did what they could with 90s technology. And it is worth calling out that her hair has been a wig in this entire movie. Oh, it movie. is the worst fucking lace front I've ever seen. But this, so filming on Empire Records, which is what I know right. her originally from, wrapped she, a month before this yeah, started she filming. she shaved her head. And she had her head shaved for that movie. So yeah. like she did not have time to grow anything more than a short pixie. So they had to put her in a wig. But it's so very clearly also, a look, wig. I'm just going to throw this out there. People have gone through crises and shave their heads. I mean, obviously she was going through a little bit of suicidal moment. Would be fine to think she shaved her head also. I mean, she could be short-haired. True, but I think for the character in the movie... She had to be girl next door, yeah. Well, yeah, because like you don't... A girl with a shaved head that's new in town showing up at a Catholic school probably is going to stick out even more like a sore thumb. Yeah, plus that Chris guy probably never would have approached her if she was Cubali. Anyway, the lighters of feather stiff as a board shot was so cool. And there are cool film effects later that were pretty impressive at the time that occur later in the movie. I don't know. (laughs) This scene just makes me scratch my, my head every time I see it. This ain't it. The girls are so impressed. 
And Nancy reaches out to touch it, proclaiming that it's real. I Which think it's not. It's a wig. It makes it worse because she touches it. And it like, it looks that like her hand's not even really there. It's and like, she like touches great. it and she's like, it's real. And I'm like, dude, I, okay. It's supposed to be a glamour. The girls ask Sarah to do something for her. And the scene ends with Nancy asking for a smaller ass. Ah, uh, yes, the 90s. Small I, asses were in. And I'm sorry, but... Nancy's I, ass is tiny! They showed her in these, like, skin-tight pants in the scene just before when she's in the living room with with her mom and I everybody. Know, like, her mom smacks her on the butt and she there's walks... Nothing, there's like, nothing. she has the tiniest little booty. And I'm like, no. a smaller what? No, a there's con, nothing there to take. concave butt? I don't know. We next see Sarah in bed, awakened by Chris yelling her name from the driveway below. She opens the window to find Chris standing there in all his super stalky glory. He asks Sarah why she didn't answer the phone, and she reminds him that it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah, says Chris. That's a good reason. Then he says he was thinking they could move in together. Oh, God. Sarah, Sarah appropriately exhausted and weirded out, says she doesn't think that she's ready for that. Chris says that he can't stop thinking about Sarah, and though he doesn't really know why, he thinks he loves her. And he doesn't love anyone but his mom and this little puppy that he had when he was a kid. Sarah says Chris should go home and walks back inside. Chris calls after her, telling her that he has no idea what's happening to him, but he can't eat and he can't sleep. Mr. Bailey suddenly shines a flashlight at Chris's face from the front door and asks him if he can help him. Chris concludes that no one can help him. The girl's so desperate puppy. I know. He's such a desperate puppy at this point. The girls return to the witchy shop for provisions, and Sarah walks up to Lirio for assistance in undoing a love spell. Yeah, he's yelling at my window like a cat heat. Now, what do you recommend for that? <laughs> How do you turn a uh, like paranormal hose on him? That's yeah. what I need. Lirio tells her not in so many words that it sucks to be her. She asks Sarah with a gentle smile that when she opens a floodgate, how does she undo it? She says the spell must run its course. There's no one doing. Get a squirt gun to keep him from peeing on the plants, I guess. I mean, <laughs> just just kind of let him run it out. Nancy chimes in that Sarah should let him suffer. Lirio redirects Nancy. It is not for her to judge suffering. Bonnie walks over and asks when Lirio is going to show them what goes on behind the curtain. Rochelle asks if it's where Lirio keeps all the missing kids from the neighborhood. Guys, why are you bullying this woman who has all the coolest shit and clearly knows a thing or two about a thing or two? Like, Yeah, and like she didn't even doing nothing but stealing from her. Like, be fucking nice to a witch. That's yeah, all I'm I saying. I don't get it. I would have asked to intern here, and it is no fucking lie. Like, I would have been like, hello. You don't even have to pay me. No, nah, I would be like, hello, beautiful Spanish woman in blue. Will you adopt me? But no. Um, Sarah asks what she does behind the curtain. Is it black magic? But Lirio explains to magic there's neither black nor white. It's both because nature's both, loving and cruel all at the same time. All the girls listen intently and take Lirio's advice to heart. Or rather, Rochelle holds a phallic-shaped braided candle up to Bonnie's mouth, and they laugh about it while Lirio is talking. (laughs) Lirio says that the only good or bad is in the heart of the witch. She asks the girls, but mostly Sarah, if they understand. Rochelle scoffs not really, so Lirio offers this warning. Whatever you send out, you get back times three. Rochelle says that they didn't read any of that in any book, but Lirio explains that it's a basic spiritual truth said in many faiths in many ways. As she speaks, Nancy flips through a book titled Invocation of the Spirit. 
As she flips, she comes to a black and white image of a seascape. And as she looks at the picture, it begins to move. Thunder crashes, lightning strikes, and the clouds move overhead. Nancy slams the book shut and takes it over immediately to the cash register, saying she wants to buy it. Lirio questions, saying that she must be a very experienced witch because invoking a spirit is dangerous. Nancy says she's a big girl and asks Lirio to just please sell the book. Lirio gives the price and Nancy quips, well, what do you know? I have money. The next scene plays to Matthew Sweet's dark secret. It appears to be late evening. The sun is setting and the girls walk along a rocky California beach. I love this song, too. Mm -hmm. It's a great song. As they make their way along the shoreline, Rochelle carries a goldfish. Bonnie carries a butterfly. Sarah, a canary. And Nancy, a snake. Shocking. This is where I was like, okay. I'm wondering if all the snakes that showed up earlier in the film were like symbolic symbolic of nancy's influence and this is where you kind of get a little bit to me confirmation of that that night sitting in a circle around a campfire rochelle smoke cleanses bonnie and sarah confides in nancy about when things were worst for her she says to nancy she used to hallucinate things she would close her eyes and see snakes and bugs everywhere and when she'd open her eyes they would still be there Nancy is super sympathetic and tells Sarah that she's glad that she shared her truth. But she actually tells her that the serpent is a very powerful being and that Sarah should respect it. Yeah. Bitch. Thanks for being <laughs> sympathetic there, Nance. Yeah. Good job. I had a really hard time. You should respect the fucking snakes. Okay. <sighs> she's so single-minded. I know. Nancy then suggests that they call the corners and they all stand in a circle with their arms lifted in a power pose. Like, to the sky. Nancy begins the ritual reciting, Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the east, powers of air and invention. Hear me. Us, Bonnie corrects. Then she recites her part to the guardians of the watchtowers of the south, powers of fire and feeling. Rochelle calls to the guardians of the watchtowers of the west, powers of water and intuition. And finally, Sarah hails to the power of the watchtowers of the north, powers of mother and earth. (laughs) Hear us. <laughs> that delivery gets me every time because she's so bored. Powers of mother and earth. Nancy calls out to the serpent of old, ruler of deep. Show them his glory. Show them his power. She screams, we invoke thee. The winds pick up on the shore. A storm rolls in violent and waves crash violently against rocks. As Nancy demands, lend us your power. Show us your glory. We invoke thee, she yells again. And once more, before yelling finally, Manon, fill me. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the glass mason jar, once containing the snake, bursts as the camera t- swirls around the girls in the circle. The bag holding the goldfish bursts. The jar holding the butterfly explodes. The viewer gets spun around dramatically before landing on Nancy, who gets struck by lightning and the scene fades to black. I have to read something to you right now about this scene so this is from an official website of the movie Mm -hmm. so and this is specifically talking about what happened in the scene so the crew had to return to the location a second time to complete filming that was interrupted by several weird occurrences that caused even witch consultant pat devon to raise an eyebrow 
The fog rolled in at midnight. The four actresses used actual Wiccan rites and language to invoke powerful forces. Then, as Feruza Balk's character attempts to invoke the deity Manam, a flock of bats hover over the set, and the tide rose dramatically, extinguishing the circle of candles. The witchcraft consultant recalls that Manon, a fictitious creation for the film, it sounds very close to Mananan, the Gaelic god of the sea. Oh, shit. Luckily, we weren't all swept out to sea. And then the director, Andrew Fleming, said that every time the girls started the ceremony and only when they would start the ceremony, the waves would start coming up tremendously fast, pounding heavily. And then right when Nancy said her line, Manon, fill me, right at that exact moment, we lost power. And it was a very strange thing. So I'm just saying it's movie background. (laughs) Make of it what you will. Super fucking cool. And, you know. Even if they made it up just to kind of sell the creepiness and it's the witchiness fun. of the movie, it's fun. Yeah, so. it's fun. The next morning, Rochelle wakes up on the beach. Her and Bonnie walk towards the shoreline to see Sarah already looking out. Nancy is slowly walking on the water. She looks a few crayons shy of a full coloring set as she <laughs> asks the girls if they feel what she's feeling. She says Manal blessed her. She can feel him running through her veins. They follow the sound of sirens down the beach a ways and notice that at least a half dozen beach sharks are of all varieties. Dude, is that a hammerhead? Mm -hmm. Nancy is elated, proclaiming that these are her gifts, that she's Manon's daughter, and that Manon is everywhere and in everything. Oh, dear. Nancy Nancy surely seems stable enough to handle unlimited god powers. Yeah, no, great job. Yeah, let's give it to her. Well, and it's the thing is, she doesn't just, she's not like, I'm his daughter. She's like... I'm your daughter now. I'm like, oh, you're insane. (laughs) Her cheese has slid off her cracker. cracker. Yeah, it's gone. We next see Sarah riding shotgun in the car while Nancy drives, urging her that they've done enough already. Sarah says that she doesn't want to humiliate Chris anymore. She tells Bonnie that she's completely narcissistic now. We have no evidence of Bonnie's narcissism, by the way. She tells one guy in one scene he has a cute butt. And other than Bonnie, se- other than that, Bonnie seems kind of chill. I and mean, dare I say happy? I mean, honestly, I can't be that mad at Bonnie. I no, mean, I know that's what I'm I saying. I cannot imagine going through life. Right. I mean, whatever I could. Yeah, and Bonnie bites back that she spent most of her life as a monster, and now that she's not, she wants to have a little fun. Nancy takes this opportunity to boredly ask the girls what color the stoplight up ahead shows. Bonnie says it's red from the back seat. Nancy asks, doesn't red mean stop? And just as she's about to run the light, it quickly switches to green and the girls giggle. Sarah continues her protest, saying that she knows the girls think that they are getting what they want now. But like Lirio said, it's throwing things out of balance and it'll come back to them threefold. Nancy retorts that what they are doing is fun and scary and who gives a shit? Just as another red light changes magically to green, as Nancy approaches it. Sarah asks Bonnie and Rochelle what they think, but Nancy intercepts them answering, they don't think. Rochelle calls her a bitch playfully, and Nancy warns Sarah not to try to win them over because it won't work. Sarah says she's not, and Nancy is paranoid. Nancy does not like this. Mm -mm. She screams she's not paranoid, as Bonnie parrots paranoid from the back seat, and Nancy tells them both to shut up. They're like mindless, giggling banshees in the backseat. Yeah, this point. and Nancy is so focused on being the powerful one, the head bitch in charge. Yeah. Like 
she she's losing her shit because she feels like Sarah's the one that yeah. you know they're kind of looking to for you know proof that like she was what caused everything to work and yeah. Nancy cannot handle that. Right. She turns her venom back to Sarah asking if she wants out of the circle. Sarah protests why it has to be that way, but Nancy bites because that's the way it is. Sarah insists that she's only saying they should think and she doesn't want out. She then adds that one of these times the light's not going to be green. Nancy takes this as a challenge and speeds up the car, mocking Sarah and asking her if she's scared. Nancy runs the red light, almost getting T-boned by an oncoming car, and Rochelle and Bonnie whoop and cackle from the back seat. Nancy looks back at them earnestly and says that that was actually pretty close. In the next scene, Rochelle is in the locker room showers and follows a trail of blonde hair to a very bald and scab-covered Laura Lizzie. She looks up at Rochelle, desperately telling her that it just keeps falling out. Two of her friends rush to her side and attend to her, telling her it's okay. Right before the scene cuts away, Rochelle looks off screen and her reflection lingers half a second longer before also looking off screen. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cool shot and it's really like a blink and you miss it moment. But I do love it. It's very subtle. Like she looks away and then she looks away in the reflection. Yeah. And there's a couple other spots starting here where mirrors kind of come into play and reflections. Yes. Yes. We next hear Chris begging Sarah over the phone again. She sounds that she could use someone to talk to. He says he has to be alone with her. He has to see her. And it's important. Then he asks her why she's being this way and insists it's only dinner. Okay, no. why are you being this way? Definitely is not how you're going to get anything you want from me personally. Oh, and especially demanding that to be alone with me? Fuck yourself. Yeah. Nobody demands anything of me. Yeah, I'm a bullheaded tourist and I'll dig my heels in and ghost you. But I guess Sarah feels pity or maybe he's just trying to get him off the phone. Anyway, she finally agrees. Chris can be heard celebrating on the other end of the phone and they hang up. We see them later that night driving down a dark two-lane road. Portishead's scorn plays with just, which just adds to the amazing soundtrack. This song. Portishead I, is so good. This particular song yeah. of Portishead's. I'm just yeah. like, I love it too much. I know. Sarah vents to Chris about the problems she's been having with Nancy and the others. Sarah says that they turned their backs on her the first time she disagreed with them. Chris leans in on his seat looking longingly at Sarah and tells her he knows exactly how she feels. That sometimes he feels like they are the same person. Sarah asks if they're supposed to be headed to a restaurant, but creepy Chris, my cooker stalker, looks at her in the most uncomfortable, unmoving way and says no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Sarah tries to dial down the intensity by asking Chris if he ever thought about these feelings that he had for her and where they're coming from. Chris says no, he can't think, he just feels. One day he woke up and he couldn't wait to see her, and it's been like that every day for him. And now that he has her, he's not letting her go. Sarah tries again to reel in the situation by asking that they stop and think about what Chris is saying. And he doesn't even know her. Chris responds by trying to give Sarah a spontaneous back rub. Dude, no. (laughs) Sarah says no, he won't let her go. She asks Chris to take her home. He won't stop. She finally wriggles out of his grasp and gets out of the car, telling him she'll walk. But it gets super unsettling from here, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Chris chases her down and pins Sarah, hisses that this is happening while fumbling with his belt. But Sarah quickly knees him in the crotch and gets away. Thank fuck. Everybody breathe. It's over. Yeah, Chris can go 
Spell or no spell, he's dead to me. Sarah runs through the woods and finally makes it to Rochelle's house. She's dirty and her hair is all jacked up and it's obvious Sarah has been crying. Rochelle immediately invites her in to find out what happened. Later, Sarah sits on the floor of Rochelle's room and finishes telling the story that Chris's eyes seemed empty. Nancy paces as Sarah talks and finally asks where Chris would be now. She says there's a party. Rochelle clarifies, yeah, but it's at Trey's. Sarah begs Nancy to leave it alone, but Nancy says she's going to play. In the next scene, Nancy walks up to the house wearing the witchiest and most amazing outfit <sighs> my little 14-year-old eyes have ever fucking seen, and I wanted this outfit so I bad. I still do. I still want this I outfit. I don't care. I love I will this admit dress. It. I love the whole vibe. I'm just like, and you know, there is a freedom in being a 40-something-year-old woman where I'm like, I could, be, I could fucking do this if I want to. Yeah. I don't give a shit I could anymore. just like Nancy every day. Yes. Nancy walks through the party, sending people to comment throughout that they can't believe she's here. News travels to the room where Chris is drinking beer, and he quickly leaves to find her. He approaches Nancy to ask if Sarah is with her, but Nancy wordlessly directs him to follow her up the stairs and leads him into one of the bedrooms. Chris walks into the dimly lit room with a fucking fireplace in it because Trey's parents are clearly loaded. Well, and I'm sorry, but why would you leave a fire unattended in an upstairs bedroom? Like During I, a house party. I, no, you're just asking for your house to be burned down. Like, I don't even like leaving incense lit in an unaccompanied room. Like, uh-uh. Chris drunkily asks Nancy what's going on before dropping his solo cup and collapsing back on the bed. Nancy climbs up with him, reminding Chris that they had some pretty fun times together, some pretty hot times too. But as she goes to get amorous with his shirt, Chris brushes her hand away. Nancy asks him, is he not in the mood? He says not to get his dick bitten off. Nancy tries again to flirt and kiss Chris, but he tells her to go away. Nancy tries again to kiss him, but he tells her to go away more forcefully and shoves her off the bed and onto the floor. Nancy pulls her knees up to her chest, whimpering and punching her head, feeling full rejection. She looks defeated and full of pain and hatred as she looks at Chris. There's definitely more than just a little history here. Mm -hmm. But Nancy has one more idea. She uses the glamour on Chris and she suddenly looks like Sarah. Chris's beer goggles don't seem quite to fathom what's happening. And when Nancy slash Sarah asks him to make love to her, he doesn't really question it. Nope. Next, the girls pull up in a cab, Rochelle advising that they shouldn't be there. Sarah says Nancy shouldn't be there either, and they head into the party. Rochelle walks through the party and runs into Laura wearing a bad blonde wig. And pajamas. <laughs> like, not only is she wearing the worst wig I've ever seen, but it's like these floral yeah. piped shirts. I'm like, I that was yeah. not a style in the 90s. Uh-uh. Laura swallows her dignity to ask how it's going. Ah, uh, am I supposed to feel sorry for her? I don't. She mm -mm. she only lost her hair. She could have. She should have lost her tongue. Mm -hmm. Can't call people racist shit without a tongue. Just saying. Sarah walks into see Sarah making out with Chris. She changes back to Nancy and blows a kiss at Chris, who launches himself off the bed real quick. Chris, who's suffering the most confusing boner, I would assume, <laughs> shouts that Nancy is a witch. They were right. Sarah tries to get Nancy off the bed and leave with her, but Nancy proceeds to explain to Chris that Sarah is a witch too, and that the only reason that he's in love with her is because she cast a spell on him, and Nancy is just there to help him forget about her. Sarah thanks Nancy very much for scaring the shit out of him and demands they go, but Nancy refuses, saying that Chris has got to pay. 
Chris says that Nancy is just jealous and Buddy, shut the fuck up. She just changed before your eyes. She clearly has powers. Why would you say that? I said this earlier in the same episode. Don't piss off a witch. I'll make just sh- don't do it. I'll make sure Trey gets your stereo. I don't <laughs> don't. Just, Why would you do that? You're say just jealous. I'm sorry and tip your hat and get the fuck out <laughs> and you're done. Nancy shouts jealous. Chris doesn't even exist to her. She glides towards him, her pointy shoes scraping against the floor as she floats towards Chris, telling him that he's nothing. He's shit. He treats women like whores when he is the whore, and that's going to stop. She smiles maniacally and asks Chris if he understands what she's saying. Chris manages only to choke out that he's sorry, but Nancy screams, mocks, shakes her head, pulls out her hair, just... Oh, and her absolute classy craziest. I love you. Chef's kiss. I know. She screams, oh, he's sorry. He's sorry. He's sorry. Sorry, my ass. As the balcony window flies open and Nancy brain yeets. Brain finistrates? (laughs) Yes. Telica finistrates. (laughs) Telica finistrates, Chris, right out the window. (laughs) That's the best thing. Why chef's kiss to that too? Telica Finistrate. I think that was a smell in Harry Potter. <laughs> Telica Finistrate. Telica Finistrate. <laughs> he splats and Nancy is gone, full fully around the bend. She smiles calmly and wild-eyed as party goers scream below. Sarah is next crying and laying on her bed. Her dad is sitting next to her attempting to console. Sarah says that she didn't want Chris to get hurt and that she thinks Chris was a good guy underneath it all. What? Sarah? No. Okay. Maybe he didn't need to die, but a good guy? No. He was a typical (laughs) high school prick. Yeah. Like, that's what he was. Sarah says that she didn't think it would go this far. Dad tries to offer her that it was just an accident. He fell. But Sarah says that she needs to be alone. When dad tries to console her by touching her shoulder, Sarah shouts at him not to touch her. Everything she touches turns to shit. Poor, poor dad. I know. He's like, um. I am not sure what's happening. Sarah cuts Nancy from a group picture and wraps a ribbon around it slowly, reciting a spell to bind Nancy from harm against others and harm against herself. Later, lying in the bed, outside doors leading into her room fly open. And Bonnie, Rochelle, and Nancy fly in, cackling at her and pulling and grabbing at her throat. They scream her name and Sarah tosses and turns in a fitful sleep, finally awaking from the nightmare. The next day, she rushes into the bathroom and locks herself into one of the stalls. The door flies open to Nancy saying tenderly that they were looking for her. Bonnie and Rochelle look smugly on as Nancy asks if she's okay. Rochelle says that they heard the police came to her home and that they came to theirs too. Sarah insists that she didn't tell them anything. Nancy asks why Sarah wants to leave the circle. And Sarah says that she never said she wanted to leave the circle. But Nancy reminds her that she didn't have to say it, tapping her temple and flashing a grin. Sarah says that people are dead, Chris and Ray. Bonnie says that those were accidents. And Nancy says that they deserved it. Sarah says that fine, whatever, she's out. And Nancy agrees that's fine. They don't need a fourth anyway. But she says that if Sarah's leaving the circle, she may want to think about leaving the school. Bonnie adds, or the city, or the planet, Rochelle chimes in. 
Nancy looks at Sarah, fake wounded, and asks her not to do any more spells on her. She lastly informs Sarah that in the olden days, if a witch betrayed her coven, they would kill her. She leaves quickly, flashing a bubbly smile, and waves bye. Rochelle walks calmly away, exiting the bathroom and telling Sarah sweet dreams. And then Bonnie turns back to ask, how has Sarah been sleeping? Mm. The mean next- girls. I know. I know. In the next scene, Sarah returns to Lirio's shop in a panic. Lirio comes down the stairs to ask Sarah what's wrong, and Sarah explains that the girls are using magic against her, and she tried to do a binding that didn't work, and they're in her dreams, and Nancy can read her mind. Lirio hugs her maternally and guides Sarah behind the curtain. There, in a black-lit room, is a glowing pentagram on the floor that moves like water. There is a huge altar against the wall. Lirio explains that the temple they are standing in was built in a place of great power. She tells Sarah that she has a tremendous light inside of her. Sarah protests that she's always screwing it up, that magic always hurts someone. But Lirio reminds her to listen to the voice of her mother, telling her to be strong. She says that her mother was a witch too. Well, that's fucking news to Sarah. Lirio, you might have fucking led with that. Could you have started there? (laughs) Just saying. Lirio informs Sarah that she can defeat her enemies, but she must surrender to a higher power. She tells Sarah that she must invoke the spirit. But Sarah is reasonably apprehensive, seeing as it made Nancy batshit and walk on water and claim sharks are her gifts and Manon is her sky daddy. <laughs> Lurio assures that Nancy took it to a dark place and guides Sarah's arms upward to begin the call to the spirit. Sarah begins to chant, but as she looks out into the shop, a vision of a fireball breaking through the front of the store and engulfing the entire room in flames sends Sarah to break away, telling Lirio it's Nancy and that she can't stay there. Lirio tries to call her back, but Sarah runs off. This I hate this moment, too. And, mm-hmm. like, Lirio can't do anything. No. She wants to, though. Like, you can see it. Like, I, I'm like, this this should have been a different movie. <laughs> like, yeah. Lirio needed to take this girl under her wing faster. And she tried, she tried with what she could, yeah. but... You know, she uh, also she also probably knew better than to meddle too much. Yeah. Sarah runs all the way back to her house. But when she gets inside, the house is quiet. She calls for her dad and for Jenny, but no one answers. Just then, Nancy calls on the phone. She tells Sarah that her parents are gone, that they flew away back to San Francisco, thinking that Sarah had run away home. Nancy then tells Sarah that there's been an accident, that it's been all over the news and to look at the TV. Sarah turns the TV on, and the report says that flight 251 from Los Angeles has crashed with no survivors. The same flight number written on a scrap of paper by the phone. Sarah, by the way, doesn't turn on the TV. It turns on by itself. Ah. Okay. Which. 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 That's all I need to say. Which. Which. (laughs) Sarah collapses in shock, and the lights flicker out. Sarah runs outside to see just all the creepy crawlies, like rats, snakes, bugs, mealyworms overflowing out of a flower pot, a boa constructor on the stairway when she runs back into the house. So this scene used over 3,000 snakes. It had They had pythons, boas, water snakes, garter snakes, rat snakes, a 10-foot Amazon constrictor, and albino snakes. This, oh my God, there's just shit 
everywhere. And the animal wranglers on this set must have had a hell of a time. I know, not to mention all of the cockroaches anyone could ever hope for. I know some of them were digital, but most of them were real. Yeah. Uh, Robin Tunney said she was willing to be on camera with all of the stuff, the snakes, the insects, the rats, whatever. But she could not bring herself to do the part where the rat fell on her head. So they used a body double for that oh. shot, which if you watch it, it's all from behind. Ah. And you can... There's something about stand-ins or body doubles or stuntmen that do things like this where they almost physically overact. And, like, to me, I was like, well, that's obviously not her. Even though the build was the same, the height was the same, the wig was the same. Yeah. I was just like, nope, that's that's not Robin Tunney doing that. And it wasn't. Sarah runs through the house trying to escape the hordes of critters. She finally backs herself into a bathroom and showers, screaming to whoever to stop it. Sarah's screams get more and more panicked. Nancy suddenly bursts into the shower, shouting, gotcha. All of the bugs and snakes and rats are suddenly gone. Another glamour from Nancy, most likely. Nancy says if she was as pathetic as Sarah was, she would have killed herself ages ago. Sarah should get on with it. And she turns on the shower head before running off. Sarah walks through the bathroom in a quiet daze, looking at all the places that were full of bugs and snakes moments ago. She makes her way down the stairs and encounters the three girls standing in her dark living room. Sarah wants to know where her dad and Jenny are. Nancy says that Sarah will be seeing them soon enough and that Sarah is going to kill herself tonight. Sarah says that she's not, but simultaneously, Nancy, Bonnie, and Rochelle begin to levitate. Sarah says no again, but Nancy says that she has every reason to want to do it. She reminds Sarah that she killed Chris and she killed her mom. That Sarah killed her mom coming out of her. Now that's really special. Even Nancy couldn't go that low. Bravo! <laughs> Nancy applauds loudly, shouting bravo, sarcastically as Sarah unravels. Hitting her fucking limit for psychological warfare. Yeah. Sarah begs meekly for Nancy to stop it. Rochelle asks why Sarah won't use magic on them, and Nancy screams it's because Sarah is weak. She observes Sarah as disgusting before chanting with the other girls. Now is the end. Let her go in peace. A letter falls at Sarah's feet, reading, I killed Chris. I'm sorry. Love, Sarah. Sarah tells Nancy that she didn't write that, but Nancy says it doesn't matter. The handwriting is the same and asks Sarah what's wrong with her scars. Sarah instinctively holds her arms out to check and Nancy slices right across both wrists with a knife. Sarah looks quickly away from her wounds, telling herself they aren't real. But Nancy yells gleefully, then why is Sarah still bleeding? Nancy pokes at the slash and blood begins to trickle from Sarah's arm pretty rapidly. Nancy tells Sarah to run like the little coward she is. And Sarah does just that because kill her with a knife. Yeah. Like, I don't, it's not about, I mean, you're murdery and I'm bleeding and yeah, yeah. I'm going to go. I'm, <laughs> I'm ahead out. I'm, I'm not, I mean, yeah. Like, did you just call me a coward? I'm a, No, I'm a coward. I'm going to go. <laughs> Sarah runs quickly into the bathroom. Not, not to find a towel at first, but to bat everything out of the medicine cabinet. She just, like, she just collapses. Like, she, like, runs in and let, almost, like, she's been blinded by something. Runs yeah. into the thing and she's just, like, shit's flying off the everything. She then grabs a towel to stop the bleeding as Nancy can be heard mocking her from downstairs. I actually love this. Like, they're witches, but they're also conniving teenage girls. And mm -hmm. Nancy's just mean. Mm -hmm. She's a mean girl. Yes. 
She really is. Sarah falls to the floor, sobbing and, you know, bleeding to death. She looks at the picture of her mother and asks her what to do. Nancy looks out at the storm from a window and tells Rochelle to go upstairs to see what's happening. Rochelle tells Nancy no, that it's getting to be too much already. But Nancy yells at her to get her lazy butt upstairs or Nancy will slit her throat. Okay, yeah, Rochelle, grab party of five and get the fuck out. (laughs) Like, kill her with a knife. Sarah calls to the guardians of the watchtowers of the north as she lays on the floor, bleeding out. Bonnie and Rochelle can be heard calling out to Sarah from the hall. Sarah gasps and closes her eyes, reciting by the power of three times three, make them see. Rochelle notices her reflection in the hall mirror first and stops Bonnie. Their images are drastically fucked. Bonnie's burns are back, but now up the entire side of her face. And Rochelle is bald. Bonnie says not again, and they both book it the fuck out of there. Nancy tries to ask him what happened and where they're going, but they peace out. Sarah still bleeds out on the floor, trying to stay conscious as she attempts to invoke the spirit. The picture of her mother begins to move. The wind in the image blows and Sarah hears the voice of her mother saying, don't be afraid. Sarah recites the words more confidently, invoking Manon. The storm rages louder outside and the lightning flashes. The doors fly open and the winds roar. Sarah's cuts begin to miraculously heal. Nancy walks up the steps slowly, brandishing her knife. She calls out for Sarah and walks carefully through the rooms. Her back towards a mirror, Nancy doesn't see that Sarah is through the other side. And Sarah reaches out and grabs her shoulder. Nancy backs away and Sarah walks through the mirror back into the overworld? The this world? We are literally through the looking glass now. (laughs) Sarah asks Nancy if she's scared her, and Nancy is fucking shocked that Sarah's not dead, and asks as much, why isn't Sarah dead, and what is is going on? (laughs) Sarah explained that Manon came to her and saved her. Nancy brushes away a cockroach from her cheek. As Sarah informs her that she is a deep shit, Manon said that Nancy abused what he's given her, and now she's going to have to pay the price. Nancy notices more cockroaches crawling from the sleeves of her coat. She looks down at her hands to see her fingers turn into snakes. She screams and panics for Sarah to stop, and she falls to the ground, her hair and hands turning to snakes, and cockroaches begin to pour out of her mouth and from every part of her clothes. Mm -hmm. Ew. Yeah. Nancy screams and shakes her head back and forth in a Nancy way, and everything disappears. Sarah leans down to tell her to relax. It's only magic. Now who's pathetic, she adds. Mm -hmm. So the shots of her being covered in bugs, basically what they did was they wrapped her head and her torso in green screen material and then put the bugs on top of this green screen material and then put Fairies of Bach digitally, like a digital composite of her back in. So the bugs were calling over her life cast. And then on a green screen material and then just put her in in post-production. Got it. Yep. It looks, I mean, you can tell it's not 100%, but it looked, for 1996, it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good, except for the, like, the screaming with the bugs coming out of the mouth, because that was all digital. You can tell that it is. Yeah. But other than that, like, it looks real. It's, Mm -hmm. It's impressive. Nancy stands weakly and says that she knows she's a little crazy, that she doesn't mean to be. She says it all got out of hand and she's sorry. She tells Sarah she's going to go, but Sarah says one thing first and recites the binding ritual from earlier. 
As she tells Nancy that she binds her from doing harm, Nancy tells her to wait, but Sarah repeats the line again. On the third recitation, Nancy flings herself at Sarah with her dagger. They fly into the back far wall, and Nancy stabs at Sarah murderously. Sarah Telica throws a dresser at them both, but Nancy dodges out of the way at the last second. The chaos goes suddenly quiet. Nancy carefully crawls over to where the dresser hit the wall and starts moving clothes and papers and shit out of the way looking for Sarah. There's like so much crap on the ground. I know. I was like, I wasn't aware that we were in like, I don't know, the the warehouse of attacks office. (laughs) No. She finally finds Sarah's clothes lying on the floor perfectly laid out. Nancy observes this as tricky as she studies the clothes. She quietly says Sarah's name and lifts the dagger over her head to stab. Just as she's bringing the dagger down, Sarah emerges from the pile of clothes and kicks Nancy across the room into the mirror and Nancy falls to the floor. Mm-hmm. Sarah lays on the floor, finishing her binding on Nancy from doing harm, harm against others, and harm against herself. So remember earlier I said we first saw that Rochelle's character, when she was in the locker room, you see her reflection kind of not quite match her. And that's like our first hint of mirrors. We see that again in this extended scene with Bonnie and Rochelle seeing their reflections in that mirror. And then here, Nancy getting flung into a mirror. So like and Sarah coming through the mirror. mm -hmm, Exactly. In the next scene, it's daylight and sunny. Sarah glances inside a grocery bag in an open trunk. When Rochelle and Bonnie approach her, they apologize for the whole trying to kill her thing. And as Mr. Bailey walks by saying hi to the girls, Rochelle tells Sarah that the whole plane crash thing was just a practical joke, a glamour. (laughs) Funny, says Sarah sarcastically. Bonnie asks Sarah if she still has powers, and Rochelle chimes in that they don't. Bonnie says so if Sarah wants to hang out and chant or call the corners... Sarah says maybe they should hold their breath until she calls. Rochelle and Buddy walk away, saying that Sarah probably doesn't have any powers anyway. But Sarah stares at them as the winds come up fast and a large tree branch falls right in their path, narrowly missing them. Careful, Sarah warns. They don't want to end up like Nancy. We next see Nancy in a hospital ward restrained to a bed. A nurse administers some kind of sedative as Nancy screams that she has powers. She says she can fly. The nurse says, he gave you something, but it ain't the power. <laughs> I Nancy re- nurse. I know. Nancy repeats that she's flying, dazed, drugged, into the camera. I'm flying, Nancy says again. I'm flying. Fade to white. Fade to black. The end. Yay. So, sister, what did you think of the craft? This is such a nostalgia movie. Even though I didn't watch it a ton when it came out, I still remember watching it when it came out. Of course, anything with a soundtrack from that time period is going to put me right back in it. It's a good movie. It has weaknesses. And again, I I personally don't classify it as horror. However, even with all the movie's failings, I still love the shit out of this movie. It's so good. It's so fun. It's it's a modern They classic. did Rochelle dirty, for they sure. They did Rochelle dirty. I wish they would have given her more than just to- token black girl as her as her personality trait. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully we are getting way beyond that now with the media that's coming out now. But at, in the 90s, I mean, like, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to add, like, you know, I being a white woman have no 
stake or anything to say about people of color's representation in horror films and mm-hmm. whatnot. And they're lacking their like the lacking of stories. But it is it is definitely worth worth examining, I think, uh, for for people to kind of note it when shit like that happens and, and the, be like that's wrong. That's not okay. hundred percent. And they didn't just like Rachel True did not just experience this in the way that she was written and any of that. If you go to her Twitter, she, there were multiple times when the, when the craft would get released on different streaming services where in the credits, not the credits of the mo- that play at the end of the movie where everybody's listed, but like in the streaming listing, you know, they'll say starring so-and-so-and-so-and-so. They would mention the three white main characters and they would leave her off. And she was like... What do I have to do? I am on the poster. It was four of us. And she fought with Netflix. She fought with, I think, Showtime. Amazon still hasn't added her name to it. And she's like, this is what I've always had to go through. She said that she felt really ignored during promotional tours and interviews. They'd put up posters of the four of them, but they would also they would always just introduce you know, the three white girls. And she said, this is a quote from her. She says, at the time, I don't think my castmates understood. They were like, you're not as famous as us. But what they didn't get is that in the 90s, the excluded black person was never going to be as famous as you. So she has fought it. If you have Shudder, which you and I have seen this, but if Mm -hmm. listeners, if you have Shudder, please go watch a a Shudder original documentary called Horror Horror Noir. Noir. They interview Rachel True. She kind of gets into some of this yeah. um in that and it's about the representation of actors of color in in horror movies and it's really an excellent it watch is. and an excellent study and i i love rachel true if you're listening to us we love you <laughs> so much and we wish they wouldn't have done you so dirty in this movie i know um all of that aside <laughs> i still love this movie i know i do too i really do i really absolutely do this um, was formative for you. Like I said, when whenever I think of this movie, I'm like, oh, that's Amy's movie. Like right. 100 like that's <laughs> totally that's Little movie. Sister's movie 100%. Here's my unsubstantiated just before I get into my review. Here is my unsubstantiated theory on the vagrant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like my interpretation is that the vagrant is connected with Sarah in a totally benevolent way. He tells Sarah to relax. He tells Sarah he had a dream about her. In the movie she runs from him because he's dirty and he holds a snake. A fear we learn later when Sarah confines in Nancy. But I think deeper than that, Sarah is running from her fear of losing her mind. You think? The vagrant represents a time in society where mental illness and homelessness were linked. Stay with me. I promise it goes somewhere. (laughs) Sarah has hated everything about her abilities from the jump, mentioning that she would see snakes and bugs even when she closed her eyes. It's safe for me to assume here that Sarah has struggled with her mental health. Sarah did attempt suicide and due to the alienation and the visions and abilities she was experiencing. So when approached by this man holding the snake, it represented by society's forgotten, she's terrified. But I never felt in any way that the vagrant meant her any harm. And I think it's important for me to say that an innocent dude with a pet snake and uh, possibly suffered from delusions got run over by a car Mm -hmm. and like nobody bad and I I mean yeah she talks about a lit well no she doesn't even mention it she's like you know Chris and Ray are dead she's like Chris and Ray and I'm like and the fucking and the guy yeah that you guys like took like got were excited about hitting with a car yeah I don't know 
my review my, is that I love this movie. It's something <laughs> special to me. Mm-hmm. I will continue to watch it once a year, at least every time it's on. It's one of my favorites, and I kind of can't waver on it too much. Like, yeah. Throughout, we've talked about, obviously, the Rachel True issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some continu- continuity errors that yeah. just piss me off yeah. just because they do. Uh, there's little things here and there. But at the same time, and like the blonde, the blonde hair switch with the fucking glamour. Yeah, like, I was gonna say the aging of the effects. Terrible. Yeah, but but it holds. I it just holds this very very special warm spot in my mm-hmm. heart. It came to me at a time when I was struggling with like my own self identity, and I didn't mm-hmm. really know who I was. I was kind of an outcast. I was dressing in all black. I was, you know, kind of labeled as the freak. And so seeing that in a movie where I'm like, these girls are freaks too, but like they have powers. It just, it, it put me in a place where I just, it's going to be really hard for me to, to speak negatively about it. No, I I get it. I totally get it. I have movies that are like that too. I'm like, yeah, no, it's trash, but I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) I I get it. And I'm not calling this movie trash. I'm just saying, I know that there are movies like that for me too. So that said, how many days are you running this movie for? This was a tough one to rate for me because do I ra- do I rate it overall as a movie or do I rate it as a horror movie? And I struggled. I'm just going to rate it. As I'm going to split. Movie. I'm going to split my score. No, I'm going to oh. split my score because they were about a point separate horror movie versus. So I am renting this movie for seven and a half days. I wanted to give it an eight. I had to deduct a half a point for all of the Rochelle bullshit, both (laughs) in the movie and the shit that she suffered outside of the movie. But but it's so enjoyable. You know, before we rewatched it for the podcast, I like I said, I hadn't seen it probably in quite a few years, maybe five to six years. And I watched it again and I was just like, nope, I'm 16 again. Like I, (laughs) I, you know, I you just get sucked right back into it. And so I will definitely watch it again. It's it's. I'll I'll go listen to the soundtrack on its own. Like it's it's great. Um, I I have a feeling I know your score, but I please tell me what it is. I must know. It's a nine. Mm, okay, okay. It gets a the point deducted for the same thing. Yeah. Um, I can look. I can honestly look past like some of the bad CG, and I can look because I'm like, ah, it's you know, it's the time. It's what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I can look past the continuity errors because yeah. I'm like, it's whatever. It's a I movie. mean, all movies have those. Uh, and- but at the end of the day, you had three big name stars, and you just you biffed it. <laughs> you biffed it. Yeah. You daced it like you didn't. I don't know. So it gets it gets a point deducted. Yeah, I would deduct more, but it gets a solid nine because I'm like, I'm like, no, but I really love the movie. But I'm still in love with it. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. Um, But I'll be mad (laughs) about Rachel True, but I'm but I'm still going to watch it again. Yeah. (sighs) Thank you so much for doing this one with me. Of course. Of course. That wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on The Last Dial. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on our social media channels at Last Isle on Facebook and Twitter and at Last Isle Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. So sit back, cuddle up with your book on evoking the spirit and grab your rock with a pentagram drawn in puffy paint and come peruse the selection of movies in the Last Isle.
See you soon. Mm-hmm.